This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au There's a famous legend about a chessboard, about a grain of rice and about a king, which I really love. So once upon a time, there was a king in India, and he was a deep thinker, a keen strategist, and most importantly, loved the game of chess. Who doesn't love chess? And uh, one day, a travelling craftsman... (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) We actually have a whole board game covered in our house. It's awesome. Uh, So one day, a uh, a travelling craftsman appeared and went to the king and said, I have a beautiful new chessboard for you. And the king fell in love with this ornate, amazing board. And being a con man, the craftsman said to the king, Oh, your highness, I do not want any money for this chessboard. You know, no jewels, no gold. All I want is a little bit of rice. And uh, the king was obviously sceptical and said, Well, how much rice? To which the craftsman said, All I want is for you to place a single grain of rice on the first square and then two on the second square and four on the third and eight on the fourth and 16 on the fifth and and all the way to the 64 squares. The king did a quick bit of thinking and he thought, that sounds okay. So he agreed and, and he asked his granary to actually provide the rice in payment for this beautiful ornate chessboard. Now, not being very good at maths... Uh, the king wasn't quite aware of what he had agreed to. Because when the keeper of the granary did the sums, he realised that the king had been totally and utterly swindled. (laughs) You see, by the 21st square, the king owed over a million grains of rice. By the 41st square, it was over a trillion grains of rice. By the time he hit the 64th square of the chessboard, he needed more than 200 and 74 billion tonnes of rice. Now, for context, that's enough rice to cover the entire landmass of India, 15 metres high. That's enough rice that if you put each grain end-to-end, it would be enough to go past the Earth, past the Sun, outside of our galaxy, to Alpha Centauri, and back three times... (laughs) That's a lot of rice. Now, the story, I suppose, is that this is the power of multiplication, uh, which is the message behind the story and the message that I want to share today. You take something small, you take something insignificant, and you double it, you multiply it and reproduce it again and again and again, and over time it almost always changes the world. And the practice of multiplication is deeply, deeply embedded in the Christian story. It is embedded in the gospel and it is embedded in the kingdom of God. And if we are to make disciples the way that Jesus made disciples, it is critical that we gain the imagination and the practice of what it means to multiply, not just add, and to expect God to multiply good things over and over and over again until the world has changed. Uh, so look, this is the final series in a uh, talk in a series called A Life Will Lived. And it's been a series that has gone on for a long time because of COVID. It's about life, it's about discipleship, and it's about how to live well in the ways of Jesus. And it was premised 
on the, uh, a passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and that they have it more abundantly. And the premise is that uh, in the ways of Jesus, we have the promise of abundant life. We have the promise of peace and joy and grace and life, but the, the ways of Jesus are radically different than the ways of the world. And so we talked not only about Jesus offering us abundant life, but doing so through this word, disciple. So Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And, and this word disciple means mathetes, as we explored, which is best translated as not just learner or pupil, but apprentice of Jesus. And so we've been talking about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, because to be an apprentice is actually the way in which we live a life well lived. To be an apprentice of Jesus is to, to put on Jesus into our life, uh, his ways and his works, his practices. And the more we become like Jesus, the more his life becomes our life. Uh, but it's a very different way than the ways of the world. And so I talked about seven principles. And this is the last of those seven. Uh, we talked about the why of disciple making, which is to become more like Jesus as an apprentice. And uh, we've talked about seven principles in the middle that lead to our practices. Uh, and, and so these are the principles that we've gone through. Uh, we talked about dying to self as the foundation of what it looks like to be an apprentice. Uh, we talked about learning through imitation, so to imitate Christ. Uh, so it's not just about what we learn in our head, but it's about copying as a, an apprentice copies uh, the person they're learning from. We've talked about the practice of hearing and obeying the Word of God through kairos moments, noticing the voice of God and actually hearing and following so we look like Him. Uh, we've talked about having a balanced spirituality as individuals and as a community. So we talked about up, in and out, which are the three passions of Jesus, looking up to the Father, in a community and out to love the world. Uh, we talked about invitation and challenge, the fact that a disciple is someone who is both invited to be with Jesus but challenged to break the sin and patterns in their life to be more like him. Uh, and we talked about what it means to live life on life organically as disciples of Jesus, not just in a structured way in meetings like this, but to do it in all of life, to open our fridge, to open our table, to open our homes and our lives uh, in the pursuit of being and making disciples. So that's a quick rundown. Uh, and today we're going to talk about what it means to multiply movements and have the imagination of, of multiplication, which is critical, absolutely critical for disciple making. So, so disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus are captivated by the, by the mission of Jesus to go into the world and make disciples. And they are seeking constantly to advance the kingdom of God by making disciples who make disciples in a reproducible way. So like rice on a chessboard, the kingdom of God does not grow. We do not see the kingdom of grow in the Gospels. We see it multiply. And, and we want a heart for multiplication because we have a heart for the things of Christ. And apprentices of Jesus have multiplication, therefore, at the front of their mind as they make disciples. We are apostolically oriented, which means we are looking outwardly and not just inwardly at ourselves. We're, we're a strange group of people in the sense of we, we exist for people who don't believe what we believe 
And we exist for people who don't live like we live. In fact, we exist to love those who don't even necessarily know they need Jesus uh, so we can share the love of Christ with them. It's to have this desire to multiply life and to see the life of Christ multiplied beyond us. Uh, And so if we think of the chessboard, if every believer, if everyone here, okay, if, if everyone who calls themselves an apprentice of Jesus was to share the gospel and to invest in just one relationship and, and to lead someone to, to know Christ and to become a disciple and to teach them to do the same. If they were to do that, I don't know, every three or four years and train them to be a disciple, to make disciples, the whole world would change very, very quickly. We see that, actually, in the book of Acts. Uh, it's really, really simple. It's simply about us being spiritual parents who raise and love and bless spiritual children and then encourage them to be spiritual parents and rinse and repeat the process again and again. But the way in which we do that is actually really hard. And, uh, and I want to talk about some of that stuff. But what I want to say here is that Jesus, uh, and this is a challenge, I realize this, Jesus does not just call us to be disciples. He actually says, go into the world and make disciples. Can you see that that's different? Because making disciples is about having a passion for sharing the love of Jesus and showing others how to be like him. And that is the heart behind why we do what we do in Together Church. So look, pause for a minute. I love having introvert moments. Uh, We'll pause for a moment and ask the question, do you see yourself as a disciple who makes disciples? Do you have the imagination of multiplication embedded in your faith? Uh, Do you see yourself as a spiritual parent or as uh, just someone who receives? Just pause for a moment and listen to the Spirit of God. Okay. Let's open up Scripture and we're going to talk about multiplication. A story about the power of life and miracle from the life of Jesus. Uh, so Matthew 14, 13 to 21. I'll show the slides in a minute. So let me read. On hearing this, Jesus slipped away privately by boat to be alone. But when the crowds discovered that he had sailed away, they emerged from all the nearby towns and followed him on foot. So when Jesus landed, he had a huge crowd waiting for him. Seeing so many people, his heart was deeply moved with compassion. So he healed all the sick who were in the crowd. Now, the context of this story is really important because you can see here that the gospel writer says, on hearing this, what has Jesus heard? And what Jesus has just heard about is the story from the previous chapter where John the Baptist is beheaded by King Herod in a really violent and sadistic way. And John was not just a prophet, but he was a really important character in the Scriptures, and he was a friend of Jesus. He was actually a relative of Jesus. You see at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, this story between Elizabeth and Mary, the mothers of John and Jesus. And John was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. So there was a special friendship and kinship and relationship. So can you imagine hearing about your friend, your relative, and someone who was pointing the way to you uh, being killed by the king in, a, in an unkind uh, and cruel way, almost for entertainment. 
You know, Jesus must have been very tormented inside, I imagine, or at least emotionally drained and, and sad. And, you know, when life is hard for me, I mean, I don't know about you, but I just want to lie in bed and pull the covers up over my head. You know, I want to run away, maybe be silent or be close to Jesus. But the last thing I want to do is hang out with all you wonderful people. No. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is hang out with anyone. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I just want to be alone. And so you see this. You see that Jesus is doing this. But at the same time, he retreats and like thousands of people run after him. And what is his response? I think this is amazing. I think this is truly amazing. Instead of, of being frustrated and annoyed, he stops and he looks at the crowd and he has compassion Deep compassion wells up inside of him and he has something to give and he serves and he heals and he loves. And I think that alone is an amazing, uh, amazing part of the story. But then it goes on. So after healing the crowds, after stopping, let's read. Uh, later that afternoon, so after he's been healing these crowds again and again, uh, probably for the whole day, later in the afternoon, the disciples came to Jesus and said, it's going to be dark soon and the people are hungry and there's nothing to eat around here in this desolate place. It's no surprise. It's a desolate place. Jesus wanted to be alone. They followed him. Uh, So you should send the crowds away to the nearby village and buy them some food. They don't need to leave. Jesus responded, you can give them something to eat. And they answered, but all we have are five barley loaves and two fish. Now again, it's an amazing situation because the disciples are they're sick of the crowds. You know, I, I imagine that the disciples who knew John as well were probably broken inside. And, and all day they've been serving alongside Jesus who's had compassion. You know, I imagine a situation where the disciples get together and go, how are we going to get rid of these crowds? Because Jesus just keeps healing people. And more and more and more people come. I imagine the disciples going, I've got a plan. Jesus, he's always like really soft, right? So how about we say, oh, these people, they're really hungry and we're worried about them. Maybe you should just get rid of them. (laughs) And then what does Jesus say? He kind of surprises them, doesn't he? He says, sure, let's keep them here. And I think that you can give them something to eat. Awkward silence. (laughs) You know, like, what would you do? You know, all they've got, like there's 5,000 men plus women and children. It's a massive crowd. Like I can't imagine how hectic it all must have been. And all the disciples have is a small packed lunch. And then Jesus says, go and you do it. You know, it is absolutely impossible. It defies the laws of nature and the, the laws of reasoning. And the disciples are there in this situation where Jesus is asking them to do something that is clearly impossible. But it's not impossible for God and it's not impossible for Jesus. And this is, we know the end of the story. So Jesus says, let me have them. A few loaves, a bit of fish, your packed lunch, okay? And then he gets everyone to sit down on the grass and he took five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. He broke the bread into pieces and he gave it to his disciples who in turn gave it to the crowds. And everyone ate until they were satisfied for the food was multiplied in front of their very eyes. So they picked up the leftovers and filled up 12 basketfuls and there were about 5,000 men who were fed in addition to many women and children. So, you know, there you have it. I mean, on the surface, it's just an amazing recorded miracle. You know, Jesus took nothing 
two fish, a few loaves, and he made it into something absolutely miraculous. Uh, You know, the Gospel of Luke adds something which I think is interesting. Jesus said to the disciples before they handed out the food, when they're still totally confused about how they're going to feed people, he said, uh, get the people into groups of 50. And so that they did. The disciples went and organized the crowd into groups of 50, you know, hundreds of people, and and then said to them, we're going to feed you dinner. (laughs) Get ready. And they're thinking, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. Well, that takes trust in Jesus, doesn't it? That actually takes a lot of trust to organize a crowd and promise them food. And, and, um, you know, and I imagine it happening, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Andrew's there. Here's some fish. Here's some food. This is going to be really bad. <laughs> Here's a little bit more fish and a bit of food. He looks down and there's more. More fish, more food, more fish. More food. Like, what an amazing miracle. I heard Jackie Porn just speak, who's an amazing missionary from China. And she spoke about 15 years ago, and she talked about a situation when she was in the Forbidden City, and they had to feed people chicken. And it happened. Chicken. More chicken. More chicken. They fed thousands of people with three chickens, and they couldn't believe it. It literally multiplied in their eyes as they tore it off the bone. You know, this is what we're talking about. It is an absolutely amazing miracle. Um, And the people are in the desert wilderness, uh, and they're receiving food from heaven. And what we have to remember is that the people of Israel must have known what this meant, because we forget through our eyes. But the people of Israel, the whole nation of Israel, were based on a story from the Exodus, where the people left Egypt and they went to the wilderness. This is where they are in the wilderness. And they had no food. They left Egypt They weren't yet in the promised land and they were waiting for a miracle and then somehow manna fell from heaven. Food actually appeared miraculously from heaven and multiplied and they ate again and again and again. So this was not just an amazing miracle. Jesus was pointing very clearly to himself saying, I am the new Moses and something new is happening. A new kingdom is coming where you are not always hungry and where you are not always struggling to get your next meal. A new kingdom is coming which is not about scarcity but about abundance and there will always be food for you to eat if you rely and trust on the Father to provide for you, it is such an amazing miracle. And it is beautiful food multiplying before their very eyes. It's amazing. So, so I mean, this story is about Jesus and who he is and how he provides for us. But it also points to uh, principles as disciples that we can learn if we want to follow in his footsteps. And so uh, all four Gospels talk about this prophetic sign, and I want to share just four short things that I can see. And I want to talk about how I see it relating to us in Hobart and how it relates to the vision that God has put on our heart to multiply disciples everywhere. So the first principle is that Jesus was physically and emotionally empty, but he gave what he had in order to heal others. And, and I just, I honestly think if someone told me that my, someone so close to me died and I had to withdraw and then 5,000 people followed, I would not have anything left to give. Uh, I imagine Jesus must have been hurting, he must have been drained, and he must have wanted to just pull the covers over his head 
and that's why I went to a deserted place to be alone. I went here to be alone, guys. Get the point, you know. But he had compassion. He had deep compassion for those. He saw the needs of the crowd, and somehow Jesus gave what he had left. And it might not have been much, but he gave what he had left, and it multiplied, and it healed, and it brought life. So I think that is the first principle, and it does apply to us when we feel empty and we have nothing to give. Uh, The second principle I see that is that Jesus blessed the fish and made a feast. Around Jesus, there is abundance and not scarcity. And that is a real challenge for us in this world because our world does not have an abundance mindset. We have a mindset of scarcity. Uh, Do we have a worldly mindset where we have to earn our way to everything? We have to save and hold and hoard and compete. Or are we willing to have a kingdom mindset where actually we have a few loaves and a few fish, but if we give it away, we can trust that God will do something better with it? Do we hold on to it and invest in it until we can get enough to give? Or do we give and then trust that God will multiply the little that we have? Can you see how different that is? It requires faith and trust to actually believe in the abundance and multiplication of the, of the Spirit of God in our lives. Uh, it, it takes giving away generously what we don't have and to trust that actually in the kingdom there is always more. 2 Corinthians 9.11 Uh, says this, that you will be blessed in every way. As followers of Jesus, we will be blessed in every way so that, here's the caveat, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And by being generous, God, the King, will be glorified. You know, there's there's this sense that God will bless us, but the blessing is not just for us to hoard, it's to give away. We are made rich in every situation so that we can bless on every occasion. Can you see how that works? And in this situation, we're giving away what we don't have and trusting that God will use it and give it back. It it relies on faith and it relies on trust, which is what we see in this story. So if we trust in Jesus as disciples, he will provide for our needs and he can take the little that we have and he can make it more. That's my second principle. The third principle is that Jesus performs the miracle of multiplication through the hands of his disciples. And I think it's remarkable. Jesus Jesus didn't actually multiply the food. If you look at it carefully, what he did is he blessed the food, he gave it to the Father, and he handed it to his disciples, who had no idea how they were going to feed 5,000 people. And then the food and the miracle multiplied through the hands of the disciples, and that is so like Jesus. You know, he, he uses us, ordinary broken people, to do his miracles. You see this again and again and again. He, he chooses to limit himself by us, <laughs> and then we get to play if we trust in him, uh, and this is the pattern that we see in his life. So on the one hand, the disciples actually did nothing. They just Like, they just kind of turned up, and they had no idea what was going to happen, and stuff happened. But on the other hand, they actually gave everything. They had left their nets. They had chosen to walk with Jesus. They had chosen to make him their rabbi, and they had chosen to trust him in spite of the evidence and in spite of having no idea how this thing was going to work. 
And that's the call for us. It's to, it's to be nothing, but to trust in the one who was everything. And, and, and God can do a miracle. And, and if we trust in him, we get to see it happen in our hands, even though we have no idea how it is actually happening. God does the miracle, not us, but we get to play. That's pretty cool, don't you think? That alone makes it worth being an apprentice of Jesus. <laughs> All right, the last, the last thing that I see here is that Jesus can multiply our nothing into something. Uh, he can turn our little into lots. And honestly, this is, the, this is what I see most in this story. Uh, Jesus multiplies our nothing and he turns it into something and he takes our little and he turns it into a lot. Jesus had nothing left in his emotional love tank and yet he gave what he had and people were healed. The disciples were tired and they were confused. They had no idea how this thing was going to work but they gave whatever trust they could. Something happened. There was just a few fish, a few loaves, no resources. Something happened. Now, I actually believe this has a lot to say for Together Church, you know, which is why I want to speak to us individually and collectively because, honestly, like a lot of us feel tired right now and disappointed or emotionally drained. It's been a tough year for a lot of us, hasn't it? Uh, our missional communities are feeling a little bit, like, tired. Uh, our, our, our service has been a little bit tired and, and there's this sense where, wow, just it's been a tough slog. Stuff we may have hoped for or prayed for at the start of the year when we had heaps of momentum just doesn't quite feel like that way. Now, there's a lack of joy and a, a celebration that's been missing that I, I know Jesus is going to bring back to us. But right now, we're like, well, we don't have a lot of resources. We don't have a lot in our hands. And how is God going to multiply this? And how is God going to bring us a miracle? That's how I've been feeling. I don't know if you feel at all the same way. You may not, but that's how I've been feeling. And so I read this story and I'm, I'm hugely encouraged because God is into multiplying things, but he usually waits until we have nothing left and we come to the end of ourselves and, we, and he says, give what you have and trust me because I'm the God who provides manna from heaven. You know what I mean? We may not see with rational eyes how we how God is going to do what we see him doing in our lives, but he can. That is what faith is about. So are we willing to trust in Jesus fully and give generously with what we have and expect a miracle? So pause again. What's God saying to you personally? And are you willing for God to multiply the little that you have? Just pause uh, and then I want to share a vision that we have. So if the kingdom of God is about multiplication, then to be a disciple is to have a passion to see God's kingdom multiply. And it requires trust in the one who multiplies miracles in our life. At best, Christians have always been people who look outwardly and believe that, that through our faith in Jesus and through sharing the gospel, the world can be changed, that people's lives can be healed, and that societies can be transformed. Not just churches, 
but entire societies. We see this in the Gospels and we see this in church history. So a quick run through of what I see, which is amazing. So this, uh, these numbers come from Rodney Stark, who I have spoken about before, who is a secular sociologist that wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And uh, he tracked from a sociological perspective the numbers that we see in the first three to 400 years of Christianity. So Jesus died, I think, around, oh gosh, 30 AD. Uh, and, and, uh, and by 40 AD, there were just 1,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, the greatest empire the world had ever known. So you had 1,000 Christians, less than 1%, what, 0.0017% of the Roman Empire were followers of Jesus. It was this strange little sect of Judaism that no one had ever heard about. Uh, so then by 200 AD, there were 217,000 Christians, which sounds like a lot, but again, it's less than a percentage of the Roman Empire, 0.36%. Just a blip. No one knows, knows about it. Uh, then 150 years later, in AD 350, there were 33 million followers of Jesus. 150 years later, that is more than half of the entire Roman Empire were Christians. And then Emperor Constantine made the religion legal. What do you do if you're an emperor and half your empire believes in one God? You change your religion. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Uh, and, and here's the thing about the Roman Empire, okay? And here's the thing about, sorry, about Christianity in, in, in the Roman Empire. Uh, multiplication starts slowly and then you see this exponential graph. You know, nothing, nothing, nothing. It's hidden. It's like a seed, a mustard seed. You can't see it. You can't see it. You can't see it. You've got two fish and a few loaves. Boom. Now half the Roman Empire are Christians. That's what it looks like to multiply. It's what we see with the chessboard analogy. Uh, and it's not limited to our church history. If you look at what, ha- what is happening right now, okay, in India uh, and China, uh, in, in um, Iran and other places in Africa, we are seeing multiplication that looks very, very similar. It is absolutely incredible. Christianity is dying in the West and exploding absolutely everywhere else. Uh, so, so here are some stats from just one organization, City Team. Uh, I know the Empire and others have even better stats, but I couldn't find them and graph them fast enough. So, uh, so prior to 98, City Team were planning six to eight churches a year using addition, traditional church planning methods. Uh, and, it was, and then they, they, they were convicted by the Spirit of God that that will never make a dent in reaching the people of India. Eight, I'd be pretty happy with eight churches a year personally, but... They knew it wouldn't make a difference. And so they changed their method in 98 and they said, we are not going to plant churches. We're going to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And the next year they planted nothing. The year after they planted nothing and the person doing it was almost fired and he had to fight tooth and nail for the organisation to let him continue his methods to make disciples who make disciples. And then the next year they planted eight churches. So we got some breathing room. And the year after that, 148 churches. The year after that, 327, then 500, then 1,000. We're seeing this multiplication in places like India. Uh, Groups like Empire are planting a church every 14 minutes through multiplication. It is amazing. It is amazing. It's the same graph. Small start. You can't see anything. But if you put the right DNA in, the DNA of the kingdom, it multiplies. Small house churches multiplying again and again and again and again. This is our heart. 
Now, the critical factor for multiplication is to get to the fourth generation, okay? So if you can create a disciple-making movement where you make a disciple and they make a disciple using the, in the way you taught them and they can make a disciple and they can make a disciple, so four generations, a grandparent, uh, a parent who has a child who has a child who has a child, then you have uh, movement. You have something that is self-sustaining and something that is self-perpetuating and it repeats again and again and you start to see that exponential graph. And I, I want to sh- explain, that's important in a moment. But the reason I'm sharing this vision with you, you know, the reason I think it matters is because on, on the one hand, I think it's great that the, you know, the early church multiplied. That's no surprise, and we read that in the book of Acts. Uh, it's, it's, it's really exciting that in China and India we're seeing this, but I want to see it in Hobart. I, honestly, I want to see it here. I'm, I'm sick of stories elsewhere. I want to see house churches and disciple-making movements happen right here all across the suburbs of Hobart. I know Jamie, who is visiting, has the same heart. You know, there are people that God is raising up to, to be part of what God is doing in our suburb. And this is the question that has been driving us for many, many years. Is it possible? And it has to be because we are kingdom people. In fact, it's not possible. And that's the point. We only have two loaves and a few fish. It's not possible. But it is because we know the God of multiplication and we worship him. Do you follow? And this is what's been driving us right from the beginning. This is why we started this service. This is why we plant communities. This is why we invest in disciple making. It's why we try to do church a bit differently. And we don't care about doing church differently. We just want to do whatever can work to multiply disciples across the suburbs of Hobart. You know, and this is what I presented. Oh, this is actually, this is a vision I saw a while ago. I'll be very quick. But in 2016, I was in, uh, with, with my family in a, in, on a shack in Squeaking Point. You know, what good comes in Squeaking Point? So that's in northwest Tassie, right? And there was a glass window in the toilet door, I think. It's pretty hideous. But it spoke to me. God, God spoke to me through this pretty hideous glass window. And it was just this image of like dozens of churches multiplying, you know, some big, some small, some hubs, some hidden, functioning like a network, making disciples who make disciples everywhere. And, and it was like, that is, that is why we're, you know, we're doing what we do. And I presented this to our team, our leaders in 2016, and it's still the vision that we have. You know, we had 30 people at the time meeting in South Hobart uh, in a house, 2016, we thought, what if by 2019 we had three missional communities and we had 90 people, so about 30 in each, you know? I don't know, maybe hypothetically one in Kingston, Risen Vale and South Hobart. You know, like, wouldn't that be amazing? Now that we don't have 90 people, but we now, praise God, have three budding missional communities. But what if those missional communities could multiply in three years? So we would have six a few years later. And then they multiply and then they multiply. Like by 2037, there'd be 192 missional communities. And obviously, they don't all have to be TC communities. We just want to stimulate growth wherever we can see it. Like, but that would be enough to have a missional community and more in every suburb of Hobart. You know, we believe it's possible that almost within driving or walking distance, like within your local region, we could see missional communities everywhere. And that is the heartbeat behind why we do what we do. Uh, it's impossible in our strength, but it's possible with God. And we are behind. Like, you know, I look at this and I think, oh, we're not that far off, but we're also a long way off. We haven't yet seen a multiplying community, but I, the heartbeat is still there and it is still possible. And we, I don't want us to lose the vision just because we've had a tough year. Do you follow? We need to get back on the horse and actually go for this because it is 
possible, and I believe that God has put it in our hearts. So this is our vision. It always, oh, it's the same thing. You know, this is that mapped out. It could be. It could be. And so this is our vision. It always has been to bless and renew the suburbs of Hobart by building an extended family of disciples who make disciples, leaders who train leaders, and missional communities who birth new communities. This, it's based on an apostolic heartbeat. It's based on a kingdom vision. And it is based on the principle of multiplication. Impossible. But manna does come from heaven. So last pause, and then I will finish with one last story. Does it resonate with you? Because this is what we're about. We want to see a service. We want to see communities. We want to see disciples made. Just pause for a moment. I want to finish with a story from this year. And hopefully it's a story that encourages us. Because as I said, I feel like we're out of puff at the moment. And, and I, I, I want to actually speak about the Spirit of God and about rekindling the fire of God in our lives next week and the week after. You know, I believe that there's, we ha- we're just missing the joy of the Spirit. Uh, there's something missing in our life, a, a sense of celebration and joy, and, and I know that God wants it back in our community. It's like we're almost alive, but we're not quite alive, and, 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 and we're just a bit out of puff. It's not a criticism, but I know that God has something better for us, and it relates to us leaning in and being filled by His Spirit. So I'm going to speak about that next fortnight. Um, but even though we're out of puff, I think we should celebrate what God is doing because it's just happened in a really different way. And I do actually want to talk about this little project called Hope Groups because actually God is actually using us to multiply disciples across the world. We just haven't seen it in the way we expected to in our little corner. Okay? Um, so in March this year, as, as most of you know, I think, I, um, God put a vision on my heart and on our heart to, to equip people to make disciples in a pandemic. And we decided we would use online technology to train and equip people to start little groups of people, you know, let's say one or two Christians, one or two you know, exploring, maybe unchurched people, to get together and, and to, to, to read the stories of hope from the life of Jesus, to be a community and, and to help people practically. It's a really simple idea a really simple bunch of instructions, but the heartbeat was to multiply disciples who made disciples by multiplying hope groups that led people to faith, that would multiply new groups, that would multiply new groups, that would multiply new groups. And, and we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could get, I don't know, 10, 15 hope groups up? That would be amazing during this pandemic. Uh, you know, we, we had... Um, and, and, and it came because I woke in the middle of the night. I won't tell the whole story, but I woke in the middle of the night and I just had Esther 4.14 ringing in my ears, which was like uh, this story where, where um, Mordecai says to Queen Esther, what if you know, the world has been shaken, essentially? What if the Jewish nation are in trouble for such a time as this? Is really, what if God had actually allowed this around us? You know, in my situation, the pandemic, in our situation, what if God allowed the pandemic to happen for such a time as this so that we could respond with the love of Jesus and not kind of retreat inwardly, but look outwardly? I mean, that was the heartbeat behind this project. And we had two fish and five loaves. We probably had less than that, to be honest. We had no funding. We were totally stretched for time. Uh, there were no denominational networks. Uh, we had no influence, no organisation. It's just an idea that 
came from God and, and my leaders in, in this church said, yes, go for it. We will support you. They resourced it and they gave me time. Uh, and then pretty quickly I broke my leg, had an accident, broke my leg, broke my finger. I slept in one room and pretty much was bed bound for like a long time. It hurt to type and I couldn't really do much. And in God's mercy, he multiplied a movement from that bedroom with a computer and Zoom. Uh, so we had in April uh, about six or eight hope groups that we started in TC as an experiment online using Zoom. In May, we miraculously received funding and got to employ someone to do this and started training people outside of our church. We trained people in Victoria through Churches of Christ Victaz. We trained a few people that we knew locally in Hobart. Uh, and we got a few hope groups going in Victoria and around Hobart outside of ourselves. Now, just what, six months later, we have more than 100 groups that we know of, and there are a lot more that we haven't been out of track. They're multiplying in a self-generating way all around the world. We have them all around Australia, in every state that I know of. Uh, I don't know about Northern Territory, but in all the states, there is a hope group, multiple hope groups, to be honest. Uh, there's some in Mongolia, heaps in Central Africa, UK, Ireland, Caribbean, USA, Canada. Like, they are going everywhere. And we are hearing stories week after week of beautiful, beautiful stories of hope. Uh, uh, elderly people, some people in a nursing home who have never known Jesus are, are reading the Bible and finding hope in community. Uh, there's people of orphans, there are orphans in Kenya who have been given blankets and food and response to the help part of the hope group. And um, there are neighbours who are reaching out and caring for neighbours in Victoria. You can't meet, but let's start a hope group. Uh, there are people who are forgiving past wrongs. A beautiful story about a Serbian man who, who ended up forgiving people in his life after reading stories of hope from the life of Jesus and it changed the trajectory of his death. Uh, lonely teens experiencing friendship and, of course, non-believers who are putting their trust and faith in Jesus for the very first time. I mean, the stories are beautiful. Uh, and, and we are seeing third generation, not fourth yet, but third generation multiplication of hope groups. But that's in six months. That's really Really encouraging. I believe that this will be a self-generating, self-sustaining movement in some parts of the world. Uh, so this is Simon Pierre as an example. Okay, he's a French-speaking church planter in Brazzaville, in the Congo, in in the middle of Africa. Okay, and and Simon Pierre uh, did training with me online through Zoom, and he liked it. So he started a hope group, and people came to faith. And so he started to train his leaders in how to run a hope group. But he's a French-speaking man, and his his team speak French. So so he, but his English is good. So I worked with him to translate it into French. I didn't translate it, but I worked to train him, and he translated it, and then he trained his leaders. Uh, this is Pastor Jean-Baptiste Bongo. So I like to say it's Pastor Bongo from the Congo. Makes it easy to remember. And uh, Pastor Bongo from the Congo is in Oweso, which is a different part near uh, of French-speaking Congo. And this is a picture of him. Uh, he was trained by Simon Pierre, and he is training his leaders to go and lead hope groups. It's cool, isn't it? Uh, and then one of these guys is Brother uh, Arsene Bite, and this is Brother Bite. Okay, and Brother Bite uh, went out and started a hope group, and uh, it got bigger, and then it got bigger. And rather than following our advice, which was to multiply them, he decided to put it all together. 
but it became a house church. So when I got this photo two weeks ago, I found out that there are 25 people in Mindongo, which is a region of Oeso, nine new believers that are to be baptized, six people who had stopped attending church are now going every week into this little house church, uh, and, and it's third-generation multiplication. We're praying for fourth-generation multiplication in the next few months. In this one region, uh, the vision that Simon Pierre has is that everywhere in the Congo there will be hope groups. How cool is that? It started from an idea from Together Church. It's awesome. We should celebrate what God's been doing this year, don't you think? I mean, yeah. And, and um, I could... It's great. It's not, just, it's not just limited to the Congo. Obviously, it's stories from afar. These are not quite so far. This guy's Duffy, okay, James Duff. We love him. He's a pastor in WA. Uh, he's been a person who's blessed us for many years. Now, now, James Duff in WA, he ended up being trained, uh, and all these other strange people around him, he got trained, and, uh, and, and he, he ended up um, running a hope group, okay, and we're just with a guy in a cafe. Oh, you guys are getting distracted. I'm going to move on. All right. <laughs> So he got trained, and he trained up another person. Uh, he trained Sally, and Sally's just awesome. She's like one of these incredible people who just, she took the idea and she just ran with it. Like, she just, she beams whenever she talks about hope groups. She started two hope groups, and, uh, and one with teens and another group, and people came to faith, and, and one of the teens ended up running the group with other teens. And so now Sally's now a trainer. She's training multiple people across Student Union in WA and other places, and they will offer hope groups to people who go to camps and then exit camps and want to find uh, an ongoing exploration of, of Jesus. So again, it's not third-generation growth because I've been involved in it, so it kind of doesn't really fit that pattern. But it's a still a pretty good story, and I believe that in, in WA we're going to see a self-generating movement through this stuff. Um, there are stories, I heard a story just yesterday that we recorded of someone coming to faith through a group. I don't even know where it is. I have to find out where it is, like what country they live in. Uh, they have an English accent. But it's such a beautiful story of what God is doing right now. And it's because of Jesus, but because we take his imagination of multiplication seriously. Do you follow so even though God has not yet done what I would want him to have done in our little community, even though there's an aspect where we are a little bit out of puff, um, God is using our church community indirectly and directly to multiply disciples in the Congo, in the Caribbean, in Adelaide, in Perth, uh, in multiple places. If that's the case, I believe he can do it in Kingston, in South Hobart, in Risdenvale, in North Hobart, in West Hobart, in all the places we live. I believe he can, and I believe he will use us to do it. Uh, it just might take a bit more time, and let's not give up. So to summarise, in the kingdom of God, things don't grow, they multiply. Uh, we need an apostolic mindset that has multiplication and faith in what we do. Uh, a few loaves and a few fish is all we need if we trust in Jesus. And he can turn our nothing into something if we deeply and fully rely on him. So let's keep praying, let's keep loving, let's keep seeking the voice of God and trusting that he will do a miracle in our life. So to finish this series, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. Uh, Jesus offers life to those who follow him. His ways are different than our ways. 
and his mode of growing and changing and healing people is different than that of the world, but the invitation to come and make apprentices of Jesus who make apprentices of Jesus who make an apprentice of Jesus to transform this world, this suburb, this place is on our hearts. And the call that he says, come follow me, is the same call that he is saying to us. Will we follow Jesus? Will we trust in him enough to, to, to give him all we have and will we wait for him to multiply life using our own hands as disciples? Why don't we stand? If, if you feel comfortable, you don't have to, but if you feel comfortable, I'd love you to stand uh, because we're going to take communion and communion is our response to Jesus. The gospel is a gospel of multiplication. It's actually a gospel of grace. And, and it's a gospel that says we cannot earn the love of God in our own way. We cannot make something happen in our own strength. And we cannot reach the vision that God has put on our heart using our own strategies. The gospel says that Jesus came and died and rose again so that we could receive life for free. We see it. Manna comes from heaven. It's not earned. Food is multiplied in our hands, yes, but it's because of the grace of God. So all we can do is just put our hands out and say yes to Jesus. At the end of, uh, the end of this story in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, listen to this eternal truth. Unless you eat the body of the Son and man and drink his blood you will not have eternal life. He said, I am the living bread. I am the manna from heaven. I am the one that you are seeking. In me, he says, you find life. Eat this bread and you will live forever. So if you are, if you are someone who has never, if you have never given your life to Jesus, if you have never quite made a decision to be an apprentice of Jesus, then his invitation is for you. you know, he says, come, trust in me. Put your hope in me and I will give you life. When we eat this bread together, that is what we're doing. We're receiving the life of Jesus. We're becoming apprentices in a different way. If you're someone who feels tired and, and exhausted, if you are an apprentice but you just feel a bit flat, then when we, when we break this bread together and when we eat it, we remember that Jesus did the work, not us. And we receive it. And we can say, Jesus, please fill me once more. Help me to give you what I have because you gave everything. If, if you need to repent of something because something in your life is getting in the way of your relationship with our wonderful Father, then do that. Say sorry and receive his free forgiveness. Or if you just want to sit and, and, and just be in love with the God who loves you more, do that. So when you eat you know, the bread when you share the cup, remember that Jesus gave everything and, and he will give you life. So Father, we, we dedicate um, this bread, we dedicate uh, this cup to you and we remember that you gave it to us as a free gift. As we eat and drink together as a community, we pray that you will do miracles through our life and that you will restore Hobart to you with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.